Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you from the um, AJT Highlights. And this is our October edition of the podcast. I'd like to welcome you all. And uh, today joining me is, as always, Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. And we have our editorial fellow, Ariel Semino, who is a just graduated for em- from Emory's Abdominal Transplant Fellowship and just joined the University of Chicago's program as one of the surgeons and focused on liver transplant. So welcome to you both. As always, I'm just going to go down the the papers that we're going to be discussing today. We have four today, and these will be in the order of how we're going to be uh, discussing them. The first two, Dr. Semino will review, and the first one is um, analysis of outcomes and renal recovery after adult living donor liver transplantation among recipients with hepatorenal syndrome by Park et al., and a editorial by Selzner and Wong. Second one will be Effect of Influenza Vaccination in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients, a nationwide population-based cohort study by Harbo et al. And then Dr. Manon will be discussing peripheral blood immune cell profiling of acute corneal transplant rejection by Hjord Dahl et al. And uh, I will finish us off with uh, evolving the surveillance and workup of heart transplant rejection a real-world analysis of the molecular microscope diagnostic system by Alam et al. Okay, so um, Dr. Semino, um, welcome, and we look forward to hearing your discussion about these first two papers. Thanks, Dr. Levitsky. Thanks, both of you, for inviting me to join you. Uh, so as mentioned, the first paper I'll be talking about is this one looking at adult living donor liver transplant in recipients with hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, this is a study done by Park et al. and was performed in Korea. And I highlight where it was performed because the patterns of liver transplantation, specifically the ratio of living to deceased donor liver transplant there, is very different from the U.S. and Europe. So uh, the authors note they completed just under 2,300 living donors over a seven-year period. And only, and I put that in air quotes, did a little over 500 deceased donors in the same time period. So those of us in the U.S. can appreciate that that's a very skewed ratio compared to what we are used to. And the authors note this geographical difference, and they actually highlight that as one of the rationales for doing this study in the first place. So they point out that patients in the U.S. with HRS are advantaged by the MELD scoring system that we have in place, and they therefore have better access to deceased donor liver transplant. But in Asia, there are very few deceased donor transplants, and therefore mortality of patients with HRS on waiting lists is very high. So for this reason, the ability to consider living donor as a really timely Um, access to transplant in this patient population would be especially relevant. So again, as mentioned, specifically the articles looking at those patients with hepatorenal syndrome, which as we all know is the renal injury that patients with end-stage liver disease experience, largely driven by alterations in renal perfusion as a result of portal hypertension and cirrhosis. The authors go through, and I won't go through it, but they use the kind of standard accepted HRS diagnostic criteria for classifying patients. And they do further break down into the two subtypes of HRS. So type one, the more rapidly progressive disease with an initial doubling of creatinine in less than two weeks and type two, the less severe and more slowly progressive course. 
And it's been shown that with deceased donor liver transplant, patients with HRS have higher post-op complication rates and increased mortality after liver transplant. So taking all that into account in this study, the authors really wanted to look at outcomes of HRS patients, specifically in those who underwent living donor liver transplant. And they wanted to identify predictors of poor renal recovery after living donor transplant. In terms of methodology, this was a single-center retrospective study. It included 2,185 consecutive adult first-time liver transplant patients over seven years. There were 126 patients, or just under 6%, that had HRS. The remaining patients did not. There was a small number, 24 patients, in the not group that did have CKD. And then within the HRS group, 80 patients had type 1 and 46 had type 2 HRS. The authors conducted chart review and compared both the HRS and non-HRS groups, and then also did subgroup analysis within the HRS group comparing those who experienced renal recovery and those who did not post-transplant. So in terms of what they found when comparing the HRS and non-HRS groups, comparison of baseline characteristics showed that those patients with HRS were more likely to have diabetes and hypertension. They were also more likely to have a history of cirrhotic complications and more likely to have episodes of pre-transplant pneumonia and ventilator needs. Also, as expected, the MELD scores in the HRS group were higher, which reflects their worsening kidney function. Uh, the non-HRS group had a higher incidence of HCC. The HRS group experienced higher rates of needing an emergency transplant, uh, needing intraoperative blood transfusions, and also having post-op transplant bleeding episodes. Then when they were looking at kind of further post-op outcomes, the HRS group had longer post-transplant as well as pre-transplant lengths of stay. And when looking at uh, long-term follow-up in terms of mortality, with median follow-up of about four to five years, it was shown that the HRS group had a higher mortality rate, 17.5%, compared to 8.6% in the non-HRS group. Post-transplant sepsis was identified as the main cause of death in the HRS group, and malignancy was the most common cause in the non-HRS group. Now, further looking at this HRS group, 69% of patients had renal recovery, and this was defined as a creatinine of less than 1.5 and no need for chronic renal replacement therapy. Now, of the patients who didn't have renal recovery, half of them saw enough improvement in their renal function where they didn't need long-term renal replacement therapy, even though their creatinine didn't normalize. So taking those patients together, 85% of patients had enough improvement in renal function to get off replacement therapy. And the majority of these patients experienced that renal recovery within six months. When the authors looked at predictors of renal recovery, and they saw that the non-recovery subgroup of patients was more likely to have diabetes and hypertension. The average pre-transplant peak in creatinine was higher in the non-recovery subgroup. And this subgroup also had a larger proportion of patients that required pre-transplant renal replacement therapy, and they had a longer time from HRS diagnosis to liver transplant. And then finally, the incidence of post-transplant-related sepsis and mortality were higher in the non-recovery subgroup. So looking at survival at six months and five years, survival was 100% and 93.5% in the recovery subgroup compared to 71.8% and 55.3% in the non-recovery subgroup. And I chose to highlight those numbers because, as I mentioned before, when the authors looked at all comers, HRS, non-HRS, the HRS group had worse mortality outcomes. But if you actually separate this and just compare the renal recovery subgroup of the HRS patients to the non-HRS patients, you see that the mortality rates are the same. 
Uh, in terms of overall analysis, logistic regression showed that diabetes, a peak creatinine of greater than or equal to 3.2, time from HRS diagnosis to transplant of greater than or equal to 38 days, and post-transplant sepsis were associated with non-recovery of renal function. Multivariate analysis showed that post-transplant sepsis and non-recovery of HRS were negatively associated with survival. So basically, the takeaway, as the authors point out, is that these patients who have worse renal function pre-op and have to wait longer for their transplants do worse in the long run. And so they make the argument that for this subgroup of patients, living donor liver transplant is really something that should be considered. Now, as we know, living donor is not always the best option for every patient, and there are concerns with a more complex surgery and a partial or smaller graft volume, which can have suboptimal outcomes. But when you're talking about living donor compared to deceased donor, especially in a country where deceased donor wait times are longer, being able to schedule surgery, assure optimal graft quality in a short cold ischemia time, at least in this study, seems to kind of outweigh those potential negatives. So I think one of the reasons that we're highlighting this paper and talking about it is because this is a very large series of living donor liver transplant in what is arguably a sick and specific patient population, those with HRS. And the authors are able to show that they can have very good outcomes, especially in patients who do recover their renal function. And then kind of the last thing I wanted to point out in terms of takeaway and how do we kind of apply this article when we're looking at our patients in the future is that the average MELD score in the HRS group in this study was just under 29, which is on the higher end. It's, you know, not MELD 40 patients, but that is a high MELD. And I think that is definitely a MELD score that maybe a lot of centers would look at and would be hesitant to recommend these patients for living donor transplant. So I think it's important to highlight that and to see that we, or these authors, excuse me, were able to have good outcomes in a sick patient population with that MELD score. Thanks for reviewing that. I, you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, when, when living donor liver transplant was starting to expand, both uh, mainly in Asia, but uh, and then sort of to follow was in North America. Transplanting somebody with a higher meld was sort of kind of a no-no in a way. You you mm-hmm. you were worried about you know particularly the renal function that if the like as you mentioned if the remnant graft you know took a long time to recover then there'd still be portal hypertension uh, physiology and you'd still kind of have ongoing renal impairment and. I think this paper really shows that if you wait too long, but you can you can do these patients with hepatorenal syndrome as long as it's not so long in the course. And I think what you what you mentioned is that we should actually be patients with HRS. We should be not steering away from doing living donor liver transplant. We should be looking at that as these patients really need to get transplanted soon, mm-hmm. um, and try to do as as quick of a workup as possible right. when you're in this situation. And I remember when this paper was initially published online, we had an exact patient like this who had a living a donor and now their meld was like 28 or 29 all because of the kidney function. And everyone was saying, well, let's just now they're in the deceased donor territory. And I said, well, it, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen, but there are living donors available next week. So let's do it now. Mm-hmm. And I just remember discussing this paper. So I think, yeah, I think even though this is outside of the U.S., I think um, that's the only way we can get these type of data with this large a volume. 
And I think this is kind of a, I, I felt sort of a paradigm shifting paper or enlightening paper in terms of considering these patients with, with HRS, with living donor. Cause it, before, before this, it was sort of really kind of unclear if it was sort of the right thing to do. Uh, do you think that the difference in the demographics or the insurance system in Korea has, I mean, I'm not trying to be a naysayer because this mm. does sound quite interesting. Do you think that had any impact in the in the positive kind of outcomes that they saw? And could we, you know, if we rep, could we replicate that, say, in the U.S.? And that's like maybe not a question you can answer. So but sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm just. You know, they're a fully insured health system. I mean, they have different grades based on your income and they have like a bare minimum insurance and then, you know, because they have significant disparities in in economy there for sure. But it's interesting to me to hear that and to know that this, um, I mean, I never thought of HRS patients as, you know, suggesting quick, hey, let's get their living, if they have a living donor to move on that. So I agree yeah. with you. As a nephrologist, it's different for me. It's a different mindset. And a yeah, good- I think your point is a good one, Dr. Menon. I don't know enough about their healthcare system. The one thing I can say that maybe is pointing towards there not being kind of a positive bias is that they did mention that there were a large portion of patients that were referred in from like non-tertiary care centers. So it huh. seems like they're pulling at least geographically from a broad area, which mm-hmm. usually also means kind of socially broad demographic. I, th- I think the main, me- I agree, Roz, I think the main message, and I think that the way I think this can extrapolate to our patients here is, I mean, is that HRS is bad. And the longer it goes on, the, the post, every study has shown the longer you are with renal failure pre-transplant, the longer you are in post and the worse outcomes. And so this is just saying that that living donor liver transplant in, I would say, kind of early HRS, you know, where it's not weeks and weeks, really can reduce, probably reduce the mortality from waiting for a deceased donor. I mean, we they didn't exactly compare that, but it, but it sort of speaks to the prolonged renal failure nature and the the worst outcomes when in that situation. So I think it was kind of eye-opening. And again, it's sort of, they have so many transplants there that there's no way we could probably do that in the U S they do, they do uh, 500 living donor liver transplants. I think in the U S that, that probably took, um, you know, uh, that's how much we do in one or two years, you know, in this compared to this one center. So Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, you want to uh, move on to the next one, switch gears for influenza vaccination? Yes, let's. Uh, yep. So this next article is Effective Influenza Vaccination in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients, a nationwide population-based cohort study. It's by Harbo et al. And this study was connected conducted in Denmark. Again, I'm pointing out the location of the study. Its relevance being is that um, in this case in Denmark, there are systems and registries in place that allow for really comprehensive nationwide cohort studies to take place. I'll get a bit more into that when I discuss the methods. So by way of background, annual influenza vaccination is recommended for most populations and in particular is recommended by the AST for all solid organ transplant patients. 
Unfortunately, if you look at the most recent CDC data in the U.S., it shows that the average percentage of U.S. adults vaccinated for the flu has been between 40 and 50 percent over the last 10 years. Now, there isn't as much data regarding influenza vaccination rates among transplant patients specifically, but what is available shows that vaccination rates are about 50 percent in both the U.S. and Europe. And then there's also some talk about, you know, how effective are influenza vaccines in transplant patients, given that um, a lot of our transplant patients have inconsistent antibody responses because that can be impacted by immunosuppression regimens, graft type, et cetera. So taking all that into account, the authors in this study wanted to investigate the effects of seasonal influenza vaccines in transplant patients, and their primary outcome was all-cause pneumonia emission, and the secondary outcomes were influenza-related, hospital admissions, ICU admissions, and all-cause mortality. Uh, so in terms of how they did this, as I mentioned, the study is a nationwide population-based observational study and includes all solid organ transplant recipients in Denmark, and it covered nine influenza seasons. So I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I did want to just touch on some of the um, data that was available to the authors of this paper based on their registries that are um, in place in Denmark. So there's the Danish civil registration system, which includes demographic and geographic information, the Danish National Patient Register, which includes hospital data and specifically includes admission and discharge dates, as well as all diagnoses codes and procedure codes. The Danish National Population Register has income and education level, and the National General Practitioners Reimbursement Register has vaccine administration data. And just to note, most people in Denmark get their influenza vaccine from their general practitioner. And then finally, the Danish National Prescription Register has all prescription drugs sold in all pharmacies to individuals. So authors are able to see kind of complete medication lists of all patients. Now, interestingly, in Denmark, immunosuppression medications are provided free of charge from hospital departments and therefore are not actually available in this prescription register. So they weren't able to look at individual um, immunosuppression regimens. And then just uh, to put out there, all uh, patients also have access to free influenza vaccines. So the study included a total of 5,745 patients with a combined total of 11,381 person years of follow-up data. 48% of patients in the study were vaccinated before at least one of the nine influenza seasons. Vaccinated patients tended to be older, had more comorbidities and higher incomes than unvaccinated patients. The overall incident rates of pneumonia admission, influenza-related admission, and ICU admissions were 83, 13, and 47 per 1,000 person years, respectively. When the authors did initial crude analysis, it actually showed that influenza vaccination was associated with an increased risk of pneumonia admission and all-cause mortality and a reduced risk of influenza-related hospital admission. However, after adjusting for multiple co-founders, so basically all of the things that I went through in those litany of registers that they had access to, um, they found that influenza vaccination uh, had a significantly reduced risk of all-cause pneumonia admission and all-cause mortality. And there is no difference in influenza-related admissions or ICU admissions. Now, this was obviously a large study with a lot of information and a lot of variables, um, but there are still some co-founders that the authors acknowledged they weren't able to take into account. And a couple of those were vaccine efficacy. So one of the years, the vaccine efficacy was reported only about 19% against influenza. They also weren't able to look at things like Tamiflu use or concurrent pneumococcal vaccination or things like frailty. But even with all of that, I 
think what this paper is, is a really large, comprehensive, well-conducted study that has pretty compelling data that influenza vaccination has you know, benefits in our transplant patients, lower all-cause pneumonia admissions and mortality. But one of the things that I think is most interesting in the takeaway from this paper is it's not all that surprising to me that influenza vaccination is good in transplant patients, but it's surprising that less than half of our transplant patients are actually vaccinated. And that's kind of why I, when I was reviewing this paper, went out and was kind of trying to look at just data in general with the CDC guidelines. So I think this is a very nice piece that we can very um, confidently take to our patients and say, getting an influenza vaccine has a lot of benefits for you. And we as providers need to be proactive about making sure that our patients are being vaccinated because a less than 50% vaccination rate is kind of disheartening. Well, that's just the life of a medical doctor. I can say that I had, you know, in the deep South, even now you still have patients that say, I'm not going to get that, am I? I? I think there's always that intercurrent concern that it's not going to really help and it could it could make me feel worse. Um, was there any difference in terms of, of solid organ? Did they do any analysis? I didn't read the paper, so I'm guilty, but um, but that's because I've been so busy. But did they notice any difference in terms of the organ recipient type in terms of outcomes? They didn't they didn't do that sub-analysis. Okay. They didn't mention that, no. Okay. Josh, I'm sure you get everybody. Yeah. You're so compelling a doctor that I'm sure you get everybody to sign on. Yeah. No, I mean, I had my clinic this afternoon and I mean, talk about, I think actually influenza is much more acceptable than COVID, COVID. vaccination. Oh, forget COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because um, it's been around for so long and, and I mean, we'll have some patients that said they, you know, got the vaccine and still got influenza. I said, well, did you get hospitalized? No. And well, that's probably because you got vaccinated. So, yeah, I these results here are impressive because of the large volume Numbers. of data they have here, but they're, I don't think they're too surprising. Um, it's just, it's unfortunate that there's this subset, even in um, a place like Denmark, where you would think, you know, every universal healthcare, easy access, um, high quality system that this still happens there. So it, mm -hmm. we're, it's not not too unlike uh, where we live. I guess you're right. You got to keep pushing this data and showing patients, um, even that this reduces their risk of of hospitalization, and try to try to emphasize, keep emphasizing. That's why I think the having actual data is important. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Simeno, and. Uh, all right. Well, now we're on to something totally different. So the next two papers are like out of control. But so I'll be presenting a paper called Peripheral Blood Immune Cell Profiling of Acute Corneal Transplant Rejection by uh, Juper Hortel at Aarhus University in Denmark. Again, the Danes have been really getting their papers into AJT, but the senior author is Nicolas de Gauck in uh, Nantes in France. So this is a multi-center study examining uh, immune cell profiling peripherally in patients with corneal transplant. And all right, I'm not an ophthalmologist. My father had his cornea, he had corneal implants, but I, you know, he had his cataracts out and he had lenses put in. He was like, corneal transplant, what are they talking about? So we don't see a lot of corneal disease. I mean, I've seen it with herpetic uh, infection, for example, but there's obviously genetic diseases and acquired diseases that are infectious or autoimmune. And 
most days, I didn't know this, but most of the procedures are these posterior lamellar corneal transplants. And I remember um, my one of my first college boyfriends worked in the organ bank and he was always getting corneas out of people for corneal transplant. And that was back in the day. But there is also full thickness corneal transplant, which is the procedure of choice when you have these deeply invasive diseases or for retransplant. And the immunosuppression is simple. They just get topical corticosteroids for a couple of years. And the graft survival rates are enormously high, 91%. But interestingly, full thickness grafts will reject 15 to 20% of the time, which is higher than a kidney. Um, and then these posterior lamellar grafts are much lower. That's less of a transplant procedure. And this may be related to the fact that the anterior chamber is sort of an area of immune tolerance, and this is a non-vascularized graft. Although if you have a full thickness graft, you actually are invading that space and can cause inflammation. And interestingly, rejection is treated by every hourly topical steroid. So wouldn't that be kind of fun, getting up in the middle of the night or keeping them going all day long? And, and then they're tapered after a couple of weeks. And there has been an implication that there's a systemic immune response and, and long-term survival of these grafts is, is still a considerable challenge. So this group has been very interested in immune monitoring and standard immune monitoring in clinical practice is through in vivo imaging, or you, if you can imagine this anterior um, aqueous humor uh, tapping, which I couldn't even imagine. It reminds me of that movie Brazil when the lead character is getting that thing put in his eye and I like, I couldn't even take it. And I think I was in college then, so I was still like nauseated. So I'm like thinking I wouldn't want to do that as a patient. So, you know, with this information, they created a study which involved five transplant centers that do a fair number of corneal transplants and studied um, peripheral blood monitoring through both genomics as well as uh, multi-compartment flow cytometry or multi-parameter flow. They did multiple um, prospective collections. Patients that had acute rejection were also sampled peripherally after three months of treatment. And they had about 275 patients. And they also had a control group of patients with corneal disease that hadn't been transplanted. Acute rejection patients were detected around 19 months compared to the stable group, um, had thicker corneas and a higher frequency of use of topical steroids. And interestingly, when they looked at the comparison of stable function at less than three years and more than three years in follow-up, there was no difference in terms of the B and T cell markers. So they actually combined all the stable function into one group. So the results show that, you know, if you use whole genome microarrays, there were some differences of acute rejection versus stable function, about 21 genes expressed higher and one lower. However, if you looked at the false discovery rate and you accounted for that, all those changes disappeared. So that was sort of disappointing. And in the continuation of sort of negative results, um, they did flow and the flow of the PBMCs is really subtle. There are subtle, uh, significant, statistically significant changes in acute rejection. There is a slight increase in peripheral naive B cells and transitional B cells and a decrease in B memory cells. They didn't mention B regs, which is interesting because I think there is some literature in kidney, at least that that regulatory B cells may play a role in suppressing cellular responses. And T cells, naive effective memories, you know, central memory and Temra were really not different, but there was a higher proportion of T regs, um, interestingly, in the periphery of those that rejected. 
and some minor mod. So there was really very minor changes um, done. They also did a sub-analysis and identified that the full thickness patients were the ones that were really driving these profiles because the posterior lamellar profiles looked really with very, very little change. So full thickness was sort of driving the statistical change. And they also looked at about 28 patients that were treated for rejection. 82% had clinical response based on exam. And again, there were really modest changes in the profiles during rejection and then after, even with clinical improvement, maybe some changes in transitional B cells. And we're talking about a reduction from 4.9% in the periphery to 3.7. So someone like me doing flow would probably have missed it. And again, their gene expression profiles were really interesting. They had a lot of differences, but when they uh, accounted for false discovery and multiple comparisons, those differences removed. So so why did this paper get picked out? I, I think for a couple reasons. One, we don't talk a lot about corneal transplant as a non-vascularized graft, but it certainly is a, an important um, clinical issue. You know, this is one where the systemic contribution to acute rejection has been identified in preclinical studies, but we really didn't detect any differences. In, and I think a very nicely done uh, powered study where there was minimal distortion in circulating B and T subrepertoires. And again, transcriptomic, transcriptomics did not identify a robust signature. And this seems counterintuitive to clinical evidence. Again, the anterior chamber is a, an immune privilege site. These graphs are not, you know, they're non-vascularized, but once you penetrate and, and actually um, get into the chamber, you can actually activate T helper cells. You can actually get them to migrate to draining lymph nodes. So that's been shown. But again, there haven't been a ton of human studies done in this area. And most of what the information that drove their hypothesis is from animal models, which clearly do not appear to be predictive to the human condition. And have we ever heard that before? I'm a human, I do animal stuff. So I don't want to like indemnify myself. I'll never get another grant funded. But Again, it, it really does identify that it's important to look at people as a primary group. And again, they, they did see some differences in B cells. And I thought it was interesting that, that, that T regs were actually higher in the circulation of acute rejection versus stable function. And so they speculated that maybe in the stable function patients, there's more T regs in the graph, but they don't have any information. They didn't do biopsies to, to confirm that. And so some of those findings may be related to changes in the graft infiltration, which we don't know. So that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. But kind of cool. We don't have, you know, we're really trying to branch the journal out into having some more interesting things. And again, I think we have a, an expert here in peripheral blood gene expression in liver transplant patients. And naive. <laughs> I'm more of a naive person in terms of kidney. But again, very different types of graphs. And again, um, not, you know, liver, if anything, I'd say, oh, maybe that's immune privilege, but certainly the kidney, there have been really significant differences systemically. And that's probably not surprising. Bigger graph, vascularized. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, just let alone the title catches your, your eye and no pun intended. <laughs> and uh, no, but I, I think it's an un very understudied area, right? And I was trying to see if any of the genes that were in, overexpressed in rejection related to any of the other organ transplants, uh, gene yeah. expressions, and I, I didn't see any kind of overlap there. No. So certainly uh, makes you kind of think more, especially with the immune privileged component of this transplant and maybe, and, and also how tiny it is too, in terms of 
got to be the tiniest transplant uh, done on a, on a human. And, and that's yeah. another good point. I mean, I didn't think of, you know, in terms of the relative size. It clearly is immunogenic if, if yeah, given sure. the opportunity, but not sort of like a small bowel, you know, a small intestine, uh, certainly, which would probably to me would be really immunogenic. And again, um, you know, what's coming forward, I, I don't follow that literature super well. I mean, certainly thinking about you know, the prospect of moving their therapy forward is corticosteroids the only way to go. Obviously, there might be alternatives, but again... Topical, topical thymo. Yeah, yeah. topical. Uh, well, you know, they do have topical uh, CNIs, so... That's true. You're right. You're right. Okay, well, well yeah. Uh, yes, yes, Ariel, yes. sorry. Um, I also just, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a off digression comment, but I think one of the things that hit me about this paper is it's important that we don't fall into the trap of having a negative publication bias. So, you know, Roz, you mentioned that there aren't a lot of studies in this, at least in humans, and maybe it's because we haven't had very many successful studies. So I think a study, as you mentioned, like this, that has a good end, that's well done, that's pretty comprehensive, even though it has negative results, I think it's a good thing that we publish that and discuss it. Well, that's, Agreed. A, that's a great, uh, actually, dovetail into the last paper. Um, which is also sort of, uh, I wouldn't say negative results, but I guess it could be interpreted that way. And this is this heart transplant um, MMDX paper. So this is a group out of, uh, out of Baylor who is a big heart transplant program. And they have, uh, just like most programs, are doing endocardial, endomyocardial biopsies very frequently after after heart transplant to detect rejection and um, without having, you know, really uh, available biochemical marker. Um, although there has been, uh, as we all know, the um, increase use of cell-free DNA to um, detect more so absence of rejection than rejection itself in across all of organ transplant, but in heart, um, it's kind of taken off mainly because of Again, there's no there's no blood test uh, like an ALT or a creatinine, and um, but we we know that this uh, molecular microscope diagnostic system that was um, discovered and kind of validated by Phil Halloran's group in kidney, and then they've done lung and liver studies have shown that there are molecular signatures in the in the tissue that can identify rejection and maybe even distinguish. Um, AMR from TCMR in some organs and sort of perhaps get away from this uh, discrepancy or difficulty sometimes with biopsy reads that can be um, discordant between pathologists or insufficient tissue, etc. So this, this group at Baylor formed a collaboration to send their samples for MMDX, their endomyocardial biopsy samples of their heart transplant recipients. Um, and they tied this to the actual biopsy read of the endomyocardial biopsies. And they also did, had cell-free DNA performed at the same time of all of these. So it's what's, what's really kind of unique is to have kind of a parallel MMDX gene expression in the tissue, an endomyocardial biopsy uh, pathology result and a donor-derived cell-free DNA result at the same time. And so the numbers were actually quite substantial. There are 135 patients who were at a median of 108 days post-heart transplant and 228 specimens, so um, almost two specimens per patient. And again, these were done in 
the relatively early period of transplant, but there were, there were some late biopsies too. There were about a third of the specimens were done for a clinical concern for rejection. So I'm assuming these are the later ones as opposed to the earlier ones where they're, they're surveillance biopsies. And so the whole idea here was to see is there concordance or discordance with these three methodologies. So um, there's the classic, again, the biopsy tissue. Again, there's issues with just, um, as I mentioned, with, with biopsy tissue, there's the MMDX and the cell-free DNA. So looking at the paper, if you look at figure one, you can see that the agreement between the different modalities was clearly not 100% and wouldn't be really expected to be, but I think a little lower than we might might expect. So there was 61% agreement between the three modalities, 72% between MMDX and donor-derived cell-free DNA, and 70% agreement between EMBX and, and, uh, and a myocardial biopsy and donor-derived cell-free DNA. And so that's the overall. So there's a quarter or more, there's disagreement between these methodologies. So it's sort of like who is right here? And paper doesn't really fully answer that other to, other than to say of, of when, what is overcalling or, or calling rejection when others aren't. And there were, there was some clear patterns here that first of all, donor derived self-free DNA was significantly higher in AMR and mixed AMR TCMR uh, compared to uh, no rejection on uh, EMBX. So, I mean, it's it's reasonably well known that donor-derived cell-free DNA maybe uh, could be a marker of antibody-mediated rejection. I know there's some data in kidney on that 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 could be helpful. If you're so, if you're looking at some of them parallel to each other, like MMDX and donor-derived cell-free DNA, there was some agreement between them, but there was significant differences in the probability of classifying rejection. And the discordance was really due to an increased classification of rejection by donor-derived cell-free DNA relative to MMDX. And the same thing was seen with donor-derived cell-free DNA compared to endomyocardial biopsy, that there was more rejection called by by donor-derived cell-free DNA than, than the biopsy itself or MMDX. And um, and then when you compare MMDX with the biopsy itself, there was increased classification of rejection by MMDX compared to biopsy. So the bottom line is it looks like that donor-derived cell-free DNA is classifying rejection more commonly than MMDX, and MMDX is classifying rejection more commonly than than biopsy itself. So this discordance is a little bit confusing to kind of think about and how it's not surprising that there's some discordance, but um, the question is, is the hope was that they would, they could uh, kind of increase the performance of each other and be additive rather than be discordant from each other. And they did, they did find a uh, report on, a, on some cases for uh, actually five biopsy negative patients had elevated donor derived cell-free DNA and were treated and donor specific antibodies and were treated for rejection because of clinical manifestations despite a negative biopsy. So there's a, a, a uh, again, five patients where they were treated, where the biopsy was negative. And then uh, similarly, MMDX uh, result was positive for rejection, resulting in earlier treatment in three patients where later on they showed rejection on biopsy, where it didn't show it on the initial biopsy. So it's sort of some suggestion that maybe MMDX 
And, you know, molecular diagnoses of rejection may be able to pick it up earlier than um, biopsy itself. And they, and they reference some studies in the discussion on the fact that donor-derived cell-free DNA, for instance, can be increased prior to allograft dysfunction or rejection by histopathology in heart. And uh, actually, we've published on that in liver that donor-derived cell-free DNA increases prior in American Journal of Transplantation, that donor-derived cell-free DNA increases prior to, uh, prior to rejection. They don't say really what the outcome of those patients that got treated for rejection based on negative biopsies was. So that would have been helpful to, to know if those patients like really improved. Cause I think the, the idea here is if you have a negative biopsy, but you have elevated other, these other two parameters, maybe that could lean towards somebody just treating somebody for rejection because the results of the biopsy may be inconclusive. So I, you know, I think this is a really interesting study. Um, uh, I think it's cool how all of it was paired together. I think that's unique in, in, um, having these modalities all the being done at the same time. Um, it certainly speaks to the fact that probably none of them are exactly right all the time, but I think a little disappointing that we couldn't get more concordance to say this is really showing what it, it's supposed to show. And, and maybe it, it is the, you know, that endomyocardial biopsies are thought to be the gold standard, but maybe they're, they're not. And maybe there's the molecular component of this is something that, that could, could add to the diagnostic prediction and diagnostic, uh, performance of, of, of either of any of the tests. Uh, they do mention, which I liked in the future directions, they mentioned that there is a, a national clinical trial that is enrolling heart recipients to compare donor-derived cell-free DNA, MMDX, endocardial biopsy, and anti-HLA antibodies. And so I think that will really clarify it better by doing this in a prospective way and particularly in, in if, with, with some serial testing to determine if, if you can pick this up earlier than when it becomes more present on a biopsy. So I like this study. I, don't, I think it leads to more questions, a little bit more questions than answers, but I think a very useful, a nice publication. Well, well it's interesting because the cell-free DNA findings, the initial ones, if you go back and look in the literature, really were found in heart transplants with mm. Anna Valentine. And, and it was always speculated because it's a vascularized organ and it's pumping, you know, any cell damage might actually put this cell-free, the donor DNA into circulation. Um, I do think your points about pathology are, are to be taken, even though you just got back from the Banff meeting mm-hmm. and you met many pathologists. I mean, I think the heart biopsy stuff's always been sort of difficult and 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 just like the documentation in kidney, there's variations between the individuals looking at the biopsy. So in a single center study, you may be biased by one person's view. I think it is an interesting study. I think it's great that they're going to do the combo in a multi-center fashion because I think that will help answer it. And yeah, I know we want everything to align, but you know we're people and people never do what they, they're not like lab rats or mice. They don't do what we want them to do. Um, and if they did, it would, we would be out of a job and we wouldn't be doing podcasts. So I, I think it's a great paper. I think it's kind of cool to see it, you know, in heart rather than kidney or liver for once. And, and also to look at the misalignment. But again, I think our gold standard is, is biopsy. And I think there are problems with that gold standard, whether you're looking at 
rejection or, for example, acute kidney injury, and you're doing a study about ATN and native kidneys, it's always been highlighted that we have an imperfect gold standard, then that may be part of the problem. I also think the MMDX was, you know, not defined based on cell-free. It was never aligned that way. Mm. It was always the MMDX development was developed based on histopathology, although, again, the derivation of those gene transcript sets were really done in animal models, including heart allografts in mice. So it's sort of interesting to see that alignment or lack thereof, although the developers of the technology in Edmonton would probably say, well, maybe the pathologist missed something. And again, mm-hmm. I think I think heart is trickier than than kidney or or liver or lung. I think it's just a challenge. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, just coming back from Ban, there that I, this there was actually a lot of discussion about this specific issue of um, you know, biopsies and inter-observer variability and molecular diagnostics. There was a lot on molecular diagnostics, much more tissue diagnostics, but there was some on uh, peripheral, you know, uh, cell-free DNA and gene expression. And so I think what was, what I liked about it is that there was a very, I think, collegial understanding there that, that, you know, the traditional pathology is not perfect and that, you know, advancing the field forward with additional diagnostics can probably advance patient care. And so I think that that was a big part of the meeting. So this actually came out being published like right at the right time. Yeah. So, okay. Well, great. Excellent papers. I like this. I like the variety this time and I'd like to thank uh, Ariel and, and Roz for, for joining. Great discussion. And we will see you in November for the next uh, edition of AJT Highlights. Take care, everyone. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.